this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Dr. Munib Ali, the co-founder of Blockstack. Munib has a really, really amazing career within distributed systems. He is native of Pakistan, uh, earned his Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and Mathematics from Lahore University of Management in 2003, then went on to pursue a graduate study at Princeton University from where he attained the Master of Arts in Computer Science in 2011, followed by a Doctor of Philosophy in Computer Science in 2017. Um, He's had such an accomplished career and is really considered one of the experts in distributed systems. Um, Muneeb co-founded Blockstack with Ryan Shea in 2013. So 2013 is a really important year within crypto. It seems a lot of people started uh, companies and projects around that time that the technology and the systems around us were really becoming more mature to the point where you could start looking at really deploying distributed system logic. Um, He enrolled in Princeton uh, and the company partook in the Y Combinator summer 2014 cohort um and so we talked about what blockstack is and the purposes of it behind it uh, blockstack is a decentralized computing platform that puts users in control of their data and identity we talked a lot about that we talked about the development um philosophy there are two main simple principles in their development philosophy which we talked more about um a lot of it has to deal with scalability and so we talked about how things can get more performant this is a great conversation. Munib, as I said, is a highly decorated person within uh, distributed systems and uh, cryptography. Blockstack has been around for a very long time in crypto years. And so this is a great conversation about what they are doing. And so remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you hear the conversation with Munib. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have an amazing guest today. If you don't know who Munib Ali is by now, I don't know what you're doing. This is especially for people who are already in crypto, but for the family offices and the high net worth and the institutional investors, Munib is considered one of the really the classiest, most dedicated people in this space who understands distributed systems better than most people out there. He's, just as a reference point, this is one of the first guests I've had that has actually had a TEDx talk on this subject. And so this is a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Munib, if you could, you know, just for the listeners, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, and then we'll dig into Blockstack and everything else that you're doing. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that kind intro. Uh, really excited to be here. So um, as you mentioned, my background is in distributed systems. Uh, I'm a computer scientist at heart, uh, did my PhD at Princeton. And for the longest time, I was working in uh, academia, but with an eye towards commercializing technology. Uh, so the kind, the kind of projects I was involved with earlier, you can think of them as like early cloud computing or early large-scale storage systems. And uh, before that, I've done a bunch of work in uh, peer-to-peer networking. So uh, crypto, when, when it started, it was a very interesting combination of uh, distributed systems, peer-to-peer networks, and also applied uh, cryptography. Uh, so that it really piqued my interest and, and is slowly getting more and more involved uh, into this. So this is going to get 
a little technical. I always like to start the show more on the one-on-one side for the listeners that are not as up to speed as some other people. Um, but, you know, effectively, Munib is, as I said, an expert in distributed systems. You know, people every across the spectrum in, in crypto and blockchain always reach out to Munib, and he is someone who is always speaking about these subjects. So after the podcast, you know, you know definitely look and find some more of those talks. But one of the things I really loved about some of the conversations that you've had and some of the talks that you've had is this notion of looking back at the history of the internet and kind of what we were given and then how it kind of arrived and some of the fallacies and liabilities and some of the issues that have come about that. It's something that I've talked a lot about on with the show because especially for the institutional investor, they always kind of ask, well, why do we need this? And so I would love for you to address kind of, you know, quickly if you could, you know, because again, I know you can talk about this for a long time and we'll have you back on again. But you know, from the kind of the early days in the internet, you know, having kind of private networks and then having these massive conglomerates kind of take all of our data and then, you know, on the you know proverbial cloud into now what we have as decentralized systems, kind of give us a roadmap of how things happened and kind of where things kind of fell apart. Absolutely. So I think the, the internet, uh, the kind of like the core protocols and design uh, have a very rich history in academia and research. So it was funded by DARPA. Uh, the first, I would say, two, three decades of the internet, like, you know, uh, 80s and 90s and even earlier, uh, there were a lot of, like, top computer scientists working on these problems. There was this culture of open source, of uh, open protocols, and people were kind of, like, working together, uh, trying, trying to build this fairly complicated, you know, global-scale network. And uh, one of the core principles at that time was also to keep the network very neutral and very decentralized, uh, because even even DARPA and the military didn't have they didn't want to have any single points of failure uh, in this network because they were concerned about even potential uh, nuclear attacks where this network should stay online uh, even if you know large uh, catastrophic events happen. So, so being decentralized was a very core kind of like design principle of the early internet. And also there was this culture of openness, this culture of uh, the network being neutral, letting being free and open to everyone. Right? And that, that we saw uh, uh, in, in the early decades. And even if you look at some of the founding fathers of the internet, they all agree that something went massively wrong uh, in the last two de- decades. So it's like the 2000s and 2010s, where basically what happened was that instead of this core community of researchers and open source uh, and developers, the the kind of lead of how the internet works shifted to large, big companies who had different types of like uh, business incentives in place. And they were kind of like finishing the work that the core community started earlier on, right? So instead of getting decentralized open solutions to different aspects, we started getting companies that are building those features and they're trying to monetize those features by, uh, I'll give you one example that, that for example, people don't have a universal uh, username on the internet. It's entirely possible that it could have been designed as a protocol where every user just gets their personal username that is universal and you can use it on every single website. But because that functionality is not in the core design of the internet, uh, we, en- we end up using services like Google or Facebook 
uh, or, or, or make accounts on every new website that we have to go to, which is like just bad for user experience, but it's also bad for uh, kind of like giving the companies too much control over your personal information. And we start seeing these large monopolies form. There are a couple of like uh, large tech companies who effectively run most of the online services and all, all the users are really, really dependent on them. And that's the backlash that we're seeing now. And a lot of work that's happening uh, in crypto is in many cases, a solution to those potential problems. Like, like forget about uh, Bitcoin or just the payments aspects of things. Just like Bitcoin is like decentralized money, like there's no central party uh, that, that, that runs it. Uh, you can apply the same concept to things like Facebook or Twitter or Medium or, or any application that you can imagine online uh, can actually be built in a very different way where the users are uh, are in control by default. And that's a very exciting thing. That's, that's one of the biggest reasons why I'm, I'm working in this space. I don't think a lot of people know of companies like ICANN, and I think you're alluding to that. There are companies out there. So when you run a search or when you're looking for something on Facebook, it usually goes to servers that are very close to you. And then, you know, things like domain name servers around there and ICANN and a lot of other companies out there that basically know everything about you and know everything that you're searching for. And so... Again, you know, it's my opinion that there needs to be this awakening, that people need to be more aware of that. And yes, we've seen the data hacks, and that has shown some liabilities to the current system. But when people started taking more of a kind of an onus and a more of a responsibility of their privacy, and I think we're starting to see that more and more these days, especially with things like GDPR, you know, countries are starting to really take data privacy much more seriously. So I think that kind of falls into what we're talking about here. Um, yeah, so what, So basically ICANN is kind of like an internet standards body, uh, tries to look at, th- amongst other things, the domain name system. And domain name system is like one, uh, I would say, uh, subset of, of this overall issue that we are dealing with. Domain name system is, yes, there are crude servers that, uh, a lot of people depend on, but it's kind of like a federated network. There are at least uh, a bunch of different um, root servers under the administration of like different companies. And it's like somewhat, uh, I would say more decentralized than uh, depending on a large company like Facebook. Uh, what, what, what uh, I would say that basically what we're talking about over here is another angle to take is like, forget about the early history of the internet, forget about how it evolved. I think what most people uh, remember is uh, desktops. Like we used to have desktop applications and they were more local and you know, you're kind of like saving your own data. Uh, it's basically you're responsible for where you're keeping your data. You're responsible for creating backups of it. And then when cloud computing came, which is kind of like this massive thing on top of the existing internet. And it made life kind of easy for everyone. And now it's like, yeah, I'm just going to store all my files with Google. Or, you know, my program is this like very light, uh, almost like dumb uh, client. And most of the interesting things are happening with data centers or, or on someone else's computer. Let me ask you something there for a second. So I've said this before. If you've read George Gilder's book recently about Google, um, there's this notion of, you know, free. When you're free, you know, when you're receiving something for free from Google and other kind of, you know, some of these kind of 
monopolies, if you will, or conglomerates. And again, I'm speaking almost like an anarchist, and I'm not. But you know, I, I fully you know understand that when it's free, you basically are the product. And so you're talking about you know days when you, you used to have you know the desktop app, and that was when you would have to like go get you know a, an actual copy and buy a copy of say like Excel you know uh, from you know Microsoft or you know Word or so many of the other programs, and you actually have to use like. <laughs> CDs to actually use a hard drive and put it on your computer. Um, and then all of a sudden, Google said, oh, you don't have to do that anymore. You can just use Google Sheets or Google you know, Docs, and you can everything's you know, free and easy. What part of free do you think is actually playing into this? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's, that's a, the right lens to look at this, that people used to kind of like uh, purchase uh, software and run them. And then think about it from a data hack perspective. Like a hacker now needs to to hack the specific user or your computer to get access to your data, versus you know some remote company gets hacked and data on like 100 million, 200 million users uh, just gets leaked from there because everyone is dependent on that one company, right? That's a, just like one one issue with that. But coming back to this idea of like, hey, if if, if the product is free, you are the product. That is the largest business model on the internet today, right? Like, if you squint your eyes, uh, Google and Facebook are basically ad networks. They're in the business of knowing more and more about their users and then showing them ads. That's where most of their revenue comes from. And that's what they optimize for, right? There's this culture of kind of like, it's in Facebook's interest to engage the users as much as they can. And sometimes they cross the line. Right? Like, because there's a limit to how much time people uh, would spend on a network like this in a healthy way. But Facebook is in the business of like optimizing their shareholder value and they have a, they're a public company and they have certain targets to it. And that's why you would notice that, that, that some of these companies have now crossed the line to engaging in kind of tactics where they just want to engage you more and more. They're almost like becoming like addictive drugs. Right? And, and they're sitting there trying to optimize for such things because it's a free product, but they're monetizing your data. And you, you. Yeah, I, I, you and I will have this conversation again, and we'll dedicate an hour just talking about this. But I want to give people a chance to also learn about Blockstack because what you're saying, and I, I think you agree that we're in alignment and a lot of that, and that's really where the story is. But I want to, I want the listeners to know more about what you're working on on Blockstack. And you've been at this since about 2013, so. Unpack this if you could. So Blockstack is a decentralized computing platform that puts users in control of their data and identity. Apps built on Blockstack make data breaches and trust violations an antiquated notion, which is kind of what we're talking about now. So give us just the lay down, explain this a little bit more for people out there. How does it work? And, you know, in terms of the, you know, making these antiquated notions of trust violations, how does that all work? Yeah, so I think at a, at a very high level, uh, people, especially people who are not very technical, um, they should think of Blockstack as an alternative to cloud computing, or in many ways, even uh, like an like a evolution of cloud computing, right? So uh, I think people have a basic understanding of what mainframes were. Like these were these large computers, the size of a, of a room in an office, right? And everyone would connect to that machine uh, to get their work done. 
And then when desktops came, I think everyone has a notion of what a desktop computer is. It's, it's your own computer. You're running software on it locally. And, and it's decentralized. Like everyone has their own machine, their own data, their own computations. Right? So cloud computing is like mainframes. Right? Everyone is connecting to this large company, this large factory almost of computers, and you're really dependent on that company, their policies, or if they get hacked, and, and the company has all the control. Right? What we're doing is what desktops did to mainframes. We are giving every user kind of like their own uh, private data uh, lockers, and we are enabling developers to build applications in a way that applications are mostly running with the users, right? So there's like no large uh, mainframe-like uh, data factory in the middle that everyone has to connect. Right? So this is this is effectively what uh, Blockstack is doing. And then there's the question of like how are we approaching this problem because there are other projects out there as well uh, who have a similar kind of like they're targeting similar problems, but in a very, very different technical way, right? So uh, for example, you know, I think the, one of the largest projects out there is Ethereum, uh, and they have this notion of a world computer, right? That, uh, and they, they also care about decentralization, but their approach is extremely different. Their approach is that they are trying to build this logical world computer that runs everyone's programs. Right. So there's this notion of smart contracts that just do everything, and people are kind of like you know publishing programs there, and everything happens on this quote unquote logical world computer. Uh, we are the exact opposite of that. Right? Like we actually fundamentally believe that that technical approach is very limiting in terms of scalability and has a lot of security problems with it. Uh, well, what, how we build things is most of the interesting things happens at the clients, at the users. So the core of the network is very simple, and the complexity is at the edges, at the clients. So and that's, a, that's actually a very well-known distributed systems design principle. Uh, the uh, the uh, protocol, uh, the chief protocol architect of the internet, um, David Clark, he's an MIT researcher, he has this famous kind of like design principle called the end-to-end -end design principle, uh, which is what the internet uses. The internet is actually a very simple network at the at the core, right? It just delivers packets. It doesn't do any, any anything more than that. All right. And so yeah, so that's that's that that's a, that's effectively what what we do at Blocks. So that ends the one-on-one -on -one series right now because I want to go deeper into this. And so <laughs> now people know that this is going to get a little bit more deep. Um, and so we've, I've had a few people recently on the show talk about scalability issues. Um, we just had Ori from Bloxroute talking about a lot of these things. And so from your technical site, um, and by the way, you all should check out Blockstack's website. There is a lot of information on there from more of a generalist perspective and then more of a technical perspective. The platform's development philosophy followed two simple principles. First, create back-end services that allow decentralized applications to both be performant and scalable. Let's talk about first scalability. And so it seems that at layer one, the way that a lot of these blockchains, whether it's proof of work, proof of stake, are actually designed, the architecture in, in, that, in terms of it being linear, 
um, things like block sizes, which obviously also have security features in them. But because they are linear in nature, it seems that you know some of the things on layer one are actually inherently going to cause slowness compared to the centralized systems that we have. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think basically, and I, I think there might be like some slightly different definitions of layer one out there, but I, I'll, I'll explain what I mean by layer one. And by layer one, what I mean is uh, whatever layer where you have global state changes, meaning that every node in the world, so it's a, first of all, it has to be global, right? Any node in the world should be able to participate at that layer. And the second thing is that state changes are global there. Well, what that means is that if, like, Bitcoin is a great example. If I sent you some Bitcoins and there was a transaction, everyone in the world needs to agree that, yes, that transaction happened. And here's the, that state change. So that's, that's kind of like layer one. Uh, and those, those uh, definitions also translate into constraints, right? And those constraints then become that what is the average, you know, downlink, uplink bandwidth available to people around the world, right? Uh, and what is the average spec of a node that we expect to be online? Like how much memory is on that node? How much disk is on that? Well, and you can do the, these calculations pretty easily because you know what is the off-the-shelf average computer that people would be able to buy and what is the uplink and downlink bandwidth available in various parts of it. So you can, you can actually collect that data. Uh, I, actually, I, I used to work at Planet Lab, which is the largest test bed for cloud computing. It has nodes all over the world, and we can run real experiments to basically figure out scalability properties of different uh, distributed systems before pushing them into production, right? So this, this is a study you can very easily do using something like Planet Lab or, or other, other methods. And then the fundamental limitation here is how much data can be synced across these physical pipes, right? Like physical bandwidth pipes uh, across the world and globally, right? So, and that's kind of like the constraint under which any protocol needs to operate, be it Bitcoin, be it Ethereum, be it any other consensus mechanism. It seems like people are just like coming up with all sorts of new ways of doing things that are L1, that's great. Maybe, maybe one protocol is incrementally better than the other one. But at some point, you're bound by these underlying bandwidth pipes and the amount of memory and hard disk available at the average node. So you can't do a lot at L1. And that is something that I think our industry basically just got wrong. They, they, the early projects, uh, unfortunately, weren't like sophisticated enough to have a deeper understanding of distributed systems. And they just led our industry towards this direction where this, there is a concept that you could just basically effectively do computations and data storage for every user on the internet at L1. And it's impossible. Yeah, it's... I'm... The more and more, and now we've done over 40 of these episodes, and the more and more people I have like yourself who are actually, you know, computer scientists, you know, PhDs in distributed systems, you know, the more, you know, it comes to light that I, I agree with you on that. And so 
what do you think the proper so a lot of these people that come on a lot of the the projects that you know are raising lots of money these days they talk about transactions per second they talk about tps and a lot of them always get gauged or kind of benchmarked to visa um what do you think the proper kind of benchmark for transactions per second is right now yeah so i think that transaction per second is i would say a, a horrible metric because it, it, it has its roots in Bitcoin for mm-hmm. the crypto world where you're trying to look at you know how many transactions can I do with Bitcoin and people just pick you know, something like Visa to compare it to it's a it's a it's a single application it's payments right what we're talking about with decentralized computing is something much 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 larger than just payments there are all sorts of different interactions just to just to give you an idea uh, people hit the like button on Facebook uh, more than 5 billion times a day. Wow. Right. That's just like one type of interaction that happens. And you can't think of that as a transaction on a global right? Like just there's absolutely no way something like that can be built uh, as a transaction on a, on a global network. So um, that's, that, that's one thing. And I think transaction per second is also a metric used in databases, but these aren't really databases. These are different things, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll basically say, that for uh, generally for, for distributed systems, you're looking at uh, throughput, like how many interactions can happen with the mm-hmm. system. And then, then it really matters, like what is your consistency model? Uh, how quickly can all the different nodes on the network sync up on, on the same data? And right. what, are, what are the guarantees we're providing that let's say I, I do a write on a, server here that if I read the same data from another node, like what are the guarantees that how quickly they would be able to sync up and, you know, uh, uh, give me consistent results back, right? So usually distributed systems are designed around uh, roughly, like I'm not going into a lot of technical details, but roughly around these principles. I don't think anyone is sitting there thinking about what is the, you know, TPS of this data, like this, uh, this this large uh, application that is that happens to use like a combination of databases and other ways of like storing data. Do you think, and this is a little off the cuff, but do you think that as society, and this is getting a little philosophical, kind of parting away from the technical side, but do you think, I've been thinking about this more and more, but do you think that we're all speed junkies now? In, in, in what sense? Well, we demand you know when we go on netflix we demand that the video starts right away that there's no buffering we you know when we you know all these things that we do we order on amazon we expect the package now to be delivered in an hour and we're starting to see drones starting dropping packages off to people's houses and no longer waiting for a day because you know god forbid you wait for a day yeah absolutely i I do do think that there's a cultural shift and it is, it is a lot of hard work, especially for online services, right? Like whenever you're trying to optimize the speed of something, I'll, I'll give an example of uh, how Google got everyone used to like instant search results, right? The amount of work that was going into making something like that happen is like mind blowing because Google is actually, they were sending um, your characters to Google servers as you type them. Right? So if you're trying to search for, let's say, uh, a plant, as you're typing P-L-A, they are transmitting the characters one by one as fast as they can to a Google server 
so that they can process it and as quickly as possible, right? And then there are all these, these uh, uh, systems like uh, content distribution networks, caches, and uh, putting data close to where the user is and, and, and all sorts of optimizations that happen. It's, it's industry in itself in trying to make uh, some of these systems faster and scalable and, and so on, right? And if you look at the level of sophistication that's required to scale something like Google, or uh, Google is a good example. They've always done a really good job at innovating and building scalable systems. Uh, for example, there's a system called Google Spanner, it's kind of like their main uh, data store. And if you look at the amount of research that has been done, uh, and the, the research has been published at the uh, distributed system conferences that are community goes to like my uh, community that I belong to, right? And there is a very uh, much like, there's a very principled, principled approach to building such systems, right? There are design principles, they're, they're kind of like engineering best practices, they're peer reviews and all of that happens. And the crypto industry is completely on the other end of the spectrum where you, you don't find such sophisticated ways of actually tackling a a technical problem at all, right? And 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 so and, and interestingly, people who are building systems like Google Spanner, they they are uh, they are very much concerned about the size of the challenge, and they are struggling to hey, how will we ever do it? Right? So they're not like they end up doing a much better job than the crypto industry, but they're very like. Uh, self-aware of the, of, the, of the size of the challenge. Whereas in, in, in crypto, I'm, I'm generalizing here, there would be pie-in-the-sky ideas missing like, you know, technical details at every step. But there is this optimism. Everyone's like, oh yeah, scalability is like around the corner. Mm-hmm. We should be able to have this thing working in the next like six months. Or we, right? Like there's like this complete disconnect from reality of like how hard some of these challenges are and how deep you need to go to right. be able, able to get this right. I, 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 a thousand percent agree. And as I said, the more and more people we have like yourself coming on the show, we're talking about these issues. I, you know, saying, Oh yeah, this is such an easy problem or even kind of deferring to layer two solutions and et cetera. I'm like, well, wait a second. You got to get, you know, you got to get the base, you know, Pardon the pun. You got to get the base layer right, um, <clears throat> and so I, I completely agree. Um, as I said, that there were two principles that kind of define your uh, development philosophy. The second one um, is, you know, kind of on the uh, language. So you know, you provide simple, familiar development interfaces to blockchain uh, blockchain technology on Blockstack. Um, is that in reference to Ethereum and Solidity? You know, in terms of it's a very complex language; it's not very universal. Whereas things like JavaScript and other, you know, Python are a little bit more universal. Is that kind of why you went that way? Is that is that in reference to that? Yeah, I, I think somewhat. But let me let me let me explain what's going on here. So I think again, uh, as I said, that the understanding of scalability or the architecture of scalability being used um, in crypto in general or, or Ethereum in particular is to me to sound like way off. Similarly, I think there's this notion of let's just have a full Turing complete language and everything is going to be a smart contract and it just runs on chain. It's something very extreme. Like 
Like, let's just step back for a moment and look at programming languages that have been around for decades before this concept of smart contracts that are running on chain, right? Most of most applications actually don't need to be a smart contract. And this is this is something that I don't I don't think anyone talks about in crypto. Uh, then why are we forcing developers, let's say there's a developer who wants to build a Twitter-like application, why are we forcing that developer to express the app as a smart contract in Solidity on Ethereum, when you can perfectly build that in whatever language you're comfortable with, and you should be minimizing your interactions with the blockchain as much as possible anyway, and there can be these interfaces, the, the, for example, the BlockStack SDKs that 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 basically hide all the complexity of interacting with the underlying blockchain or the underlying data store. Right? So a Twitter built on Ethereum would be a smart contract where every time someone is tweeting, there's a transaction that slows everybody else down on the network. A Twitter built on Blockstack is built in whatever language the developer was uh, familiar with. People download the app locally, right? And there are very few things that are global uh, staging. It's like, I, when I register my username, yes, that's a global event because everyone needs to know what my username is. But if I'm tweeting that data is stored in my kind of like private cloud-like data locker, then only people who follow me are interested, right? So it's not a global event that suddenly everyone in the world needs to process it. Only people who are interested in that information so it's more localized. And in terms of the smart contract language, there's absolutely no need for a smart contract language for tweeting. Right? Like smart contract languages are when you want to automate something at right. the block, blockchain layer, when you want, like they're, they're more appropriate for things like when you uh, want to transfer digital assets or, or you want to, so that's why I think decentralized finance is taking off more on Ethereum where, because over there, both these things make sense. Like mm -hmm. there is less of a need of scalability. You're not going to take, let's say, a loan out like a hundred thousand times a day. And there's a need for smart contracts where you're dealing with money, you're dealing with digital assets, and they need to be automated or they need to be verified. Uh, and, and, the, and the constraints there make sense for a smart contract language. But a smart contract language doesn't even make sense for most of the applications. So you've brought up this notion of the private data locker a few times already uh, on the show. And so if you could just describe what that is for the listeners. Yeah. So think, I think think of this as um, kind of like the best of both worlds between storing files on your local hard drive and or storing them with a company like Google. Right. So what we've created is this kind of like private data locker. Like technically, it's implemented as a wide area file system, but most people don't need to care about that. Uh, they should think about this: that they can keep this data locker wherever they want. They can keep it on Dropbox. They can keep it on, uh, you know, some Linux server that they're on. If you're technically sophisticated, or can keep it on your their own computer. So let's say you're keeping it on Dropbox. Dropbox has no visibility into that data. Dropbox engineers can't do anything about it. Uh, they just see an encrypted large file being stored there. Internally, it's a file system, and like Fork, it has folders in it. 
and all the apps are writing data in their own like private buckets in in that container right so it's like your personal home drive for the internet every app is writing data to it right and i think again going back to the design of the internet this is maybe something that should have existed always like instead of leaving data with hundreds of applications you use online all of your data is with you if you want to stop using an app you just delete the app and you you never have to worry about leaving data traces there right so this is a very fundamental piece of um kind of like design architecture that maybe every user should have had access to throughout throughout the uh, the history of the internet so it you i think users should think of it as their private home drive for the internet where all of their files are um and that's why it's very important to get the scalability and reliability of that system very very high so we can actually give people the same um performance as as large cloud services like amazon s3 or dropbox right so right. so this is this is very different from the kind of uh reliability and scalability you get from uh blockchains or even peer networks right they, they don't compare in terms of performance with cloud computing at all but we do like our our storage system does and going back to like when you were saying we're becoming a uh, speed junkies i think that's a major hurdle for people to start using decentralized applications yep. because they're not going to move over to something that is slower and clunky right like it, it needs to be at least fast uh, as fast as what they were used to mm -hmm. i <laughs> you hit it on the head i've been kind of uh thinking about that a lot the last few weeks and I was going to send out a tweet today to kind of bring that up and then I figured that the bitcoin ethereum folks would probably destroy me and so I decided not to do that. Um and so I'm curious you know in terms of applications in terms of on ramping I know graphite and a few other things have been built already. So In terms of what you state so building blockchain powered apps in as little as an hour on Blockstack um talk to us a little bit about that and how you know how many currently uh, how many apps are currently been built you know kind of what the utilization has been just a little, little bit about that Yeah absolutely so I think uh we we were very explicitly in the R&D phase uh and then we kind of like published our our you know, core um uh, breakthroughs uh for the underlying technology uh in in peer reviewed conferences and then we kind of like were very explicitly infrastructure building it's like the infrastructure needs to be uh comparable to cloud computing and as reliable before developers can really build on top right and over the last 6 months or so uh we are we are basically in developer traction phase where we are heavily focused on getting uh lots of really good developers to build applications on top in in terms of an analogy uh this is the stage where let's say amazon was able to build aws and they were opening it up to startups that hey, you can come and build on top of uh aws instead of you know having your own physical hardware and servers and trying to build build your own mini data centers so uh this is where we are and we're super excited that now there are more than 100 apps slash startups built on top and this is just most most of them in the last six months so apps have been doubling quarter over quarter in q4 q1 and we are seeing the same trend continue into q2 to give you an example of what type of things people are doing so there are alternatives to google docs um 
professional uh, professional social networks like LinkedIn, uh, alternatives to Instagram, WhatsApp, OnePassword, DocuSign. There are, I think, three different types of blogging platforms. There is a service that is a completely decentralized, encrypted, private email. Like it's it's actually not SMTP. Someone has created like a new type of email on top that is way more secure, uh, way more de decentralized. So we're seeing all that innovation happen on top because we figured out the hard problems at the at the infrastructure there, and we were super super excited about it. And these are all so for the listeners, they can all use these today. Yeah. So go to bossag.org. Uh, and you would see kind of like lists of some of these applications mentioned there, or there is this app store like uh, website uh, called app.co, and you can go to app.co slash blockstack to see um, these, these more than 100 applications. And at, at, at some point, like, uh, I think these technical discussions and uh, when people ask me, like, how are you different from Ethereum or some other project, I can give an overview. But... At some point, you just let the technology speak for itself. Right? Like, That's right. Here, here are more than 100 apps. They scale today. Like you can, we can get millions of users on these apps today. And they are fast. They're as fast as cloud computing. Like, uh, and, and people are using them. Right? Like, for example, you can use Graphite with, uh, for writing a document. Uh, you can use BlockuSign to actually sign legal docs. And they're actually signed by real cryptographic keys instead of you know, just typing your name in a doc, you can actually timestamp the legal doc as well. So these, are, these apps have real utility today. I think that's where we want to go. I do think we will still stay focused on developers, like almost like what, what Twilio did, that they were trying to make it super easy for developers to build, um, uh, basically interact with telecom infrastructure. We're making it super easy for developers to interact with decentralized computing. Uh, but, but at some point, we'll start focusing a, a little bit more on the user side as well. We want to explore more users to these applications. So I would encourage, I'm going to spend some more time. I had downloaded Graphite already, but I'm going to download a few other of these things today. I would encourage people who are listening to do that too. It's always a great way. I, I did this a few months ago with a lot of the kind of open finance slash DeFi uh, kind of programs and protocols and, and platforms. It's a great way to actually you know see what's actually working, uh, see how fast it works, see what you can do with it. So I, I highly encourage people to obviously check those out on Blockstack. The last question, um, you guys had some news over the last few weeks uh, with a uh, SEC Reg A uh, uh, framework uh, for a $50 million token offering. There's, you know, this is on the kind of the regulatory side. A lot of people, especially on from the outside of crypto, always want to know about the regulatory landscape, how things are changing. So this is, you know, obviously something that is relatively new. I think you were one of the first, if not the first, to you know get this through. So if you could, you know, give us a little bit of an update about that. How did it all kind of come about? Yeah. So uh, I think this is again one of those things where Blockstack ended up taking a very different approach from other projects. We looked at the different options available, uh, looked at all the appropriate regulations, and then instead of either kind of like blocking the US markets or trying to move outside of the US or hoping that you know um, we would we would um, kind of like fight the regulators if they came down knocking, uh, we instead decided to explicitly work with regulators and figure out a, a regulated legal framework uh, where we can open up the U.S. markets. We believe that 
the, the US public markets are very important and they, we should be able to figure out how to open them up. And also that you know, Silicon Valley is still here. Uh, all these developers and all these companies are going to build on top of, kind of like next generation decentralized computing. They need to feel comfortable that this is all legal, right? And this is all, that they're not, they're not interacting with something that might actually get them into legal or, or, or trouble. So that's the approach we took. Uh, and we have been working with the SEC, like in terms of like we did private filings with them, uh, got comments back. And uh, recently we felt confident enough that we filed publicly. We've actually done two rounds of public filings now with, with the SEC. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's, again, I think similar to how I say that when it comes to distributed systems or scalability, uh, there are lots and lots of levels, and you have to go into depth of like, how complicated these things are and get them right. Uh, there's a similar thing happening on the regulation side. Where if you look at our public filing, there are lots of like very intricate details there that you had to get right, and you had to like have your legal analysis, or even like sometimes work with the regulators to figure out like how can our technology adapt fit some of these these regulations. But that's the work we have done, and I think uh, the offering has not been qualified by the SEC yet. Uh, we are waiting on that. We feel confident we will find out uh, how that goes and. Clearly, that would be an industry first. Like the SEC has not uh, qualified any such offerings before, and I think the work that we have done uh, can potentially help mature this industry uh, overall. So the main main purpose of this offering is uh, to open up our network to the general public, including the U.S. market. So 50 million is kind of like that limitation uh, from the SEC in terms of the U.S in terms of the value of the tokens that we can float. Uh, I, I don't think the, the cash offering is going to be 50 million because we plan to use certain allocations for let's say our developer incentive program and for some, some other uh, use cases, but the full details of these uh, are in our offering circle. So again, I, I think I could probably talk to you for 10 hours on this show and hopefully we'll have you back on again because the insights obviously from a distributed systems landscape from the early days in the internet to decentralized uh, what we're dealing with now is just so valuable and kind of what you're doing obviously at Blockstack and providing a roadmap for people to build apps that are scalable um, is something that is you know really really important I really enjoyed the conversation, Muneeb. Thank you so much for joining us on Bates Layer. Hopefully we can have you on again in a few months to check in and see how things are going. Again, please check out Blockstack and download some of those apps and start using them, and we'll have you uh, on again. Thanks a lot, Muneeb. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. We really enjoyed the conversation. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash Layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. 
For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.